text today is 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25, which are the concluding verses of chapter 1. And the emphasis in these verses is upon the new birth. Some, when they think of the new birth, can only think of John chapter 3 and Christ's encounter with Nicodemus, but there are a number of other places in the scripture that also tell us about the new birth. In fact, Peter is one of the writers, along with John, as well as James and Paul, but Peter is one of the writers that has more to say about the new birth than virtually anyone else. This emphasis upon the new birth at the conclusion of chapter 1 is indeed a fitting way to close the chapter because this is also how the chapter began. After the opening address, the salutation in verses 1 and 2, Paul or Peter, rather, launches right into the chapter in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Begotten us again. That, of course, is the new birth. And so the chapter begins with the new birth. The chapter concludes with the new birth. You may remember that chapter 1 is divided into two broad sections. The first section, after the salutation, is verses 3 through 12. And this entire section describes the glories of salvation, what God has done for us. A wonderful description of salvation. Things for us to know, things for us to believe. Not a single exhortation in that section. Nothing for us to do. Just listen to what God has done. And believe it, receive it, benefit from knowing what God has done for undeserving sinners. The second section of verses 13 through 25 is our response to what God has done. If you are a believer in Christ and are a recipient of this glorious salvation described in verses 3 through 12, then this is how you should respond. Yea, this is how no doubt you will respond. And this is duty. This is exhortation. A lot of exhortations in that section. This is something for us to do. First section, what God has done. Second section, what we do in response to what God has done. And what we do in response to what God has done, I think, can be summarized in basically two areas. Number one, holiness toward God. And number two, love toward others. Now, there are a number of exhortations in the section, the second section, that have to do with various aspects of our becoming holy, living holy lives toward God, but they can all be summarized in that one idea. We are to become holy in our lives as we walk before the Lord day by day. Notice that in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And the second exhortation is in regard to love. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And so these two things, holiness toward God and love toward others, and here particularly, love toward the brethren, love toward others in the family of God. In fact, verse 22 summarizes the last Section, or the, the first part of the second section, and introduces the second. In other words, it summarizes the concept of our being holy and then introduces the exhortation to love. 
Do you see that in verse 22? Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, there's that wraps up everything he said about holiness. Purifying your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So there it's all summarized in verse 22. Be holy, purify your hearts and minds, be obedient children, obedient to the Word of God, and yes, love one another with a fervent love. And there it is in verse 22, but now the concluding verses of the chapter tell us why. It goes back again to tell us why we should be holy, why we should love the brethren. And why is that? Because we have been born again. Having been born again, verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So there it is. It comes full circle. Verse 22 actually introduces one sentence. Verses 22 through 25 are all one sentence. And that sentence begins by summarizing the call to holiness and giving us the exhortation to love and then reminding us once again why. Why we are to be holy. Why we are to love one another, it is because of the operation of God's grace and the new birth that has come to our souls. Because you have been regenerated, that's why. Because you have experienced the new birth, that's why you live holy lives. That's why we love the brethren. Because we are recipients of divine grace and power, that's why. Because God has done a miraculous work in our soul, that's why. And all of this directs us to a fresh look at the miracle of the new birth. And that's what we'll see in verses 22 through 25, or 23 through 25. And I want us to see three things here. First, what God has done. Secondly, what God has used to do what he has done. And then thirdly, our response to what God has done. What God has done, what God has used to do it, and our response to it. Number one, what God has done, having been born again. The opening words of verse 23, having been born again. And the new birth is the more common man's language for the technical term, the theological term, regeneration. Having been born again, having been regenerated. This is what God has done. Now, verse 22 Peter said, having purified your souls, that's what we do. That's something for us to do. We are active in that. We work at that. We cooperate with God's Spirit. We listen to the Word of God. We find out what God requires. We learn how God wants us to purify our souls. That's what we do, having purified our souls. But this is what God has done, having been born again. And interestingly, that phrase at the beginning of verse 22 and the one at the beginning of verse 23 are actually parallel participles. Grammatically, they're tied together. You don't see that as much in the version that I have before me because in verse 22, the translators translated it since you have purified your souls. And in verse 23, they translated it having been born again. But it's exactly the same phraseology in the Greek. 
It could say, having purified your souls, verse 22, and tells us what we should do, love the brethren fervently, but then having been born again. Now, what's the point of all that? Well, this is to tell us that God implants a new nature within his children that motivates purity. Having purified your souls, well, how can you do that? How can a fallen sinful son of Adam purify his soul? Only if the second thing is true of you, having been born again. This is what we do as a result of what God has done. Peter states our responsibility in verse 22, but then he gives us the reason for it in verse 23. And so we learn something, first of all, about the power of our performance. How is it that we do anything that we do that's good and right and acceptable to God? It is only because God has worked in us and continues to work in us. Having been born again, we can therefore purify our souls. Having been born again, we can therefore be obedient children. Having been born again, we can therefore love the brethren and so forth. But it also says a great deal about the nature of regeneration. Not only the power of our performance, but the nature of regeneration. We learn a great deal about it here. And we learn, first of all, that God is active in regeneration. It is God who begets. It is God who creates. It is God who produces life. Man is passive. He is acted upon. He is created by God's power. Having been born again. That's not what we do. We don't birth ourselves. Now we purify ourselves if we have been born again. But we don't birth ourselves. Why? Because we can't birth ourselves. We can no more birth ourselves into the family of God than we could birth ourselves in the physical birth the first time. How much did you have to do with your, with your physical birth? You just showed up. Somebody else did something. Somebody else was active, and you are the result. You were passive in that. Somebody else did the activity which resulted in your conception and your birth. And lo and behold, there you are. Miracle of miracles. The miracle of life because of somebody else's actions. That's how every one of us came into this world by a birth that we had nothing to do with. And that's how every one of us who are God's children became a child of God, by a spiritual birth that we didn't have anything to do with. God did it. And it is God's actions that impart new life. It is God's actions that give us new perspectives and capabilities that we never had before we were born again. The new birth impacts men's intellect and emotions and dispositions. The new birth gives people new thoughts and new desires and new actions. We are made alive by God's creative act. And we continue to live by God's creative power. In the material universe, it came into being by God's spoken word. God said, Let there be light. And there was light, just like that. 
He said it. It happened. He spoke it. And the result was there. And so forth, right on through the creation. God created the universe. And God continues to sustain the universe day by day by His power. That which God created by His divine power, God continues to uphold and sustain by His divine power. And the same thing is true in the new birth. God is the one who produces His children. God is the one who acts in such a way that spiritual birth takes place. But He not only creates life, but He also continues to sustain life. That's the work of God too. God made us, God maintains us. God created us and God preserves us. And it takes His continued operation in our soul if we are going to continue to live and to be the children of God unto eternity. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, leaving aside the the, uh, more puzzling aspects of that verse that have to do with Christians not sinning, concentrate on that middle phrase. What is he telling us? His seed remains in him. You see, it's not only the seed of God that produces life, but it is the seed of God that remains in us, continuing to live and to be active within us that maintains that life. God gave us life. God maintains that life. God produces a new child of His who did not exist before, and God continues to uphold and maintain the life of that child that He has produced. It is God's active work that does that. This is the nature of regeneration. What God has done. It is God's actions that produce God's children. It is God's actions that produce God's family. And when we are in the family of God, we therefore manifest something of God's character. Why? Because we are the sons of God. Because we have been brought into being by the very creative act of God, by the impartation of something of His own nature, mysterious as it is and something we do not fully understand. We, of course, will reflect the character of God. How could we help but reflect the character of God, having been born by the action of God in this way, having been begotten by God himself? Of course we reflect something of God's nature, imperfect as as it is, because we are still wrestling with the remnants of our Adamic nature. And in this world, we are, are... are sloughing off gradually that old man as we are ever increasingly putting on more of the new man. And when we leave this world and go into the presence of the Lord, then we'll be done wrestling with the old man, and all you will see is that new man. And then our Christ-likeness, our God-like nature, will be a whole lot more apparent than it is now. But it is there now, and it ought to be manifest now. If it's not manifest now, then we need to question whether we have been born again. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a divinely created creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And therefore we love the brethren because we were produced by the same 
They were produced, rather, our brothers in Christ were produced by the same procreative act of God that produced us. How could we help but love the brethren? They have the same nature we have. They're in the same family we're in, all by God's grace. So that's what God has done. But now notice what God used to do it. How did God do this? Well, we don't know all the details, but we know one very important detail. And what God used to do this, this miracle of the new birth, this procreative act of spiritual children, is his word. He used his word to do that. Having been born again, we read in verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That shouldn't be surprising because... We already saw in the physical realm, God spoke. It was his word that said, let there be light, and there was light. And in a similar fashion, it is God's word that produces his children. But as we shall see, it's his word in a little bit different form. But what is the instrument of regeneration? It is the word of God. There's something that it is not. It is not corruptible seed. There's something that it is. It is incorruptible seed. It is not corruptible seed that produced God's children, having been born again, not of corruptible seed. Not of corruptible sporos is the Greek word that's used in biology of the seed that produces plants, though it is a synonym in the Greek language with spermos, the seed that produces human life. But we're not born of corruptible seed. Because, as Peter goes on to make very clear, corruptible seed produces corruptible life. Why do all men and women die eventually? Because the life that dies was brought into being by corruptible seed. That's why plants, flowers, and trees, and grass, and everything eventually dies. I was saddened to hear my wife point out to me when she was reading the paper, these beautiful uh, cherry trees that we have planted around in our church parking lot only have a lifespan of 15 to 25 years. Mm, They're so beautiful. I hate to think about having to replace a nice, big, mature, flowering cherry tree with with a little sapling that we have to start all over with again. But that's the way it is in this world. Everything is corruptible. Everything that is produced by corruptible seed is corruptible. Corruptible produces corruptible, right? But that's not what produced God's children. We weren't produced by corruptible seed. We were produced by incorruptible seed. And incorruptible seed produces what? Incorruptible life. Eternal life. A life which receives an internal inheritance. The same language about incorruptibility that Peter uses now in verse 23, having been born again not of corruptible seed but of but incorruptible, that's the same language that he used earlier in the chapter about our inheritance. Remember that verse 4? We are begotten again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. But you see, it takes uncorruptible beings to receive an incorruptible inheritance. 
And now we find out how it is that we qualify for an incorruptible inheritance. It is by being created by incorruptible seed. Isn't that exactly what Paul was telling us in 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter? When he said, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. If you're going to heaven, you must be born again. Because this first life was produced by corruptible seed, and therefore it produced a corruptible product. We are corruptible, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Therefore, we've got to have a life that is produced by an incorruptible seed so that we can receive an incorruptible inheritance. And so the instrument of regeneration is the Word of God, and This divine seed comes to us in some mysterious way through God's word. And we don't understand that fully, but we, we read what is said and we, we recognize the truth of it. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever through the word of God, through the logos of God, which lives and abides forever. The instrument of regeneration is God's Word. And God's Word is alive, and God's Word is capable of producing life. God's Word is is, uh, teeming with life, and God's Word is capable of producing life. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews said? The Word of God is quick, that is alive, and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews said? Well, that's what Peter's telling us too. We are produced as God's children by an incorruptible seed which is all bound up in some way with the Word of God, the incorruptible Word of God. And the Word of God is a living Word. And the Word of God is a life-producing Word. It is living and it reproduces. And furthermore, it is permanent and unchanging. The Word of God which lives, it's alive, and abides forever. It lives and abides forever. Our first birth produced life which does not abide forever because it came from corruptible seed. And so it lives, but it dies. But the spiritual life, the new birth, produces life which lives and never dies because it was produced by incorruptible seed. It is produced by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. It never, never dies. That's one of many reasons why salvation cannot be lost. Why can it not be lost? Because it is produced by an incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever. You can no more lose your salvation than you can destroy the Word of God. You can no more lose your salvation than you can destroy God Himself. It's His seed. It's His creation. It's His life. It's His activity within the soul. It is His maintenance of that divine life that He planted within. Who can overcome that? Not the devil himself. 
And then having stated this, Peter now gives the proof text for his assertion about the new birth and about the word of God and about the life that is produced by it and about the corruptible seed and the incorruptible seed. And now he he pulls out his text and it comes, of course, from the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. He was just now writing a portion of it. And so his text comes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And he quotes his text. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Here's the biblical support for what I just said, says Peter. Here's my text that undergirds what I just told you. And there it is. And this text emphasizes the transitory nature of human existence. All flesh is like grass. I believe they call that in uh, literature a simile. Am I right? A comparison using like or as. All flesh is like grass. This is a comparison. There's, There's an analogy that can be drawn here. By the word flesh, he's referring, Isaiah is referring to all natural human existence, whatever is produced in the first birth. It doesn't mean simply the physical part of us. It means the man as he is produced in Adam. That's what the flesh is. All flesh is like grass. In what way is it like grass? Well, the grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It's like grass in that grass doesn't last very long. Flowers don't last very long. Oh, how beautiful they are for a short while. And then they're gone. I came into the auditorium Wednesday night and noticed that those beautiful Easter lilies that had been placed in our auditorium a few days before were turning brown. So beautiful for a few days. And then death and decay. Now, not all things physical die that quickly, but all things physical die. And in the light of eternity, it's all very relatively brief, isn't it? So all flesh is like grass. And all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. All the glory of man, that is all the things with which we adorn our flesh. All the things that we use to to, uh, make our Adamic life seem more glorious, more beautiful, more honorable. All those things are also like grass. They are short-lived and all fade away too. In other words, all wealth, all rank and position, all beauty, all talent, all intellectual achievement. It's all like grass. It all comes for a little while and then it's gone. The grass withers. The flower falls away. It's all temporary. There's nothing sadder than someone who lives for these adornments, for the glory of man after it's gone. Nothing sadder than somebody who's lived his whole life for wealth and his wealth is taken from him and he's left in poverty and everything he lived for is gone. What a sad, sad person is that. Nothing sadder than a person who spent his whole life trying to achieve some rank, some position, some place of recognition in society, and then it is stripped away from him, maybe through his own wrongdoing, maybe not, 
But through some reason, it's gone. And he's left without the title. He's without the position, without the rank, without the honor. There he is, just down there on the common level of man again, when he's lived his whole life for this high rank and of position. And oh, what a sad, sad person is that when his glory is all stripped away. How sad is that person, man or woman, who lives their life for beauty. They spend all their time trying to be beautiful and trying to... to uh, make themselves more more important and, and be more pleased with themselves because of their physical beauty, which they work on so hard and spend so much time and attention on. But it fades. It doesn't last. I don't care how much you spend on it. I don't know how many cosmetics you buy. I don't know how much, don't care how much uh, uh, working out you do. I don't care how many, how, how many Botox injections you have. I don't care how much surgery, cosmetic surgery you submit to. It, it fades. It decays. It withers away. And if that's all you're living for, how sad you are when it becomes so apparent to everyone that the beauty that you staked your whole life, your whole reason for being, your whole self-image on, it's gone. It's gone, never to return. Well, the Bible told you that. Why didn't you listen? What should we live for? That which is permanent. All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. There's something. If you stake your life on that, if you if you live for that, if if that's where you find your reason for being, if that's where you find your self-image, if you want to use that terminology, if that's what you find your delight in, if that's what you find your goals in, if that's what you live for, then you will never be disappointed because that endures forever. It never fades, never corrupts, never dies, never goes away. In fact, it just ushers forth into greater and greater glory as time ushers into eternity. And so we are reminded of the nature of God's Word and the nature of what God's Word produces. The Word of the Lord endures forever. The Word, and now He changes the Word from Lagos to Rhema, which is obviously a synonym, basically, in the Greek language. But if there's any, any difference here, the word Rhema seems to emphasize specific statements. Even just short statements from the Word of God have life-giving power and life-sustaining power. We've got a whole Bible, and we should study and read all of it, but we can only take it in little pieces at a time. We can only take a bite at a time, can't we? So whether we're talking about the Lagos, which is the whole, or the Rhema, which is a part, it endures forever. It has life-giving power. It's the Word of the Lord. Isaiah 48 said the Word of God. And uh, Peter makes a little change here. The Word of the Lord, because that word Lord is used for Jesus Christ. This seems to be a a subtle uh, emphasis upon the deity of Christ here. It is the word of Christ that endures forever. It is permanent. It is eternal. And so we've seen, number one, what God has done, regeneration. We've seen, number two, what God has used to do it, his word. 
And so we should see, number three, man's response to this amazing word of God. And what should our response be? Threefold. Number one, we ought to recognize the nature of God's word. As we have been looking at these things, we should understand the nature of God's word. Peter's talking about the inscripturated word. The word of God which lives and abides forever. What word is that? Is that the word when God stepped out on the, on the balcony of heaven and said, let there be light and there was light? Well, of course, any word of God is God's word and it all has power. But what I'm particularly interested in is the word that's found in the Bible. And he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, this is the word of the gospel which was preached unto you. Isn't that what he says? This is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. What word? The word just like this, this quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. That's the word I'm talking about, the inscripturated word. Secondly, it is the unified word. What do I mean by that? Old Testament, New Testament, all same basic message. What is the word that saved Peter's readers? What is the word that the evangelist who preached the gospel to them preached? Evidently, the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Evidently, the Old Testament, because Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all the word of God. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all the same basic message. Yes, there are some differences, and we need to study them and understand them. We're talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We're talking about about various differences, but essentially and basically they are the same. And all of those first Christians were saved by the proclamation of the word of God from the Old Testament. Peter preached Christ from the Old Testament. Paul preached Christ from the Old Testament. The unified word. Number three, it's the encouraging word. This gospel. This word which by the gospel was preached to you, we read in verse 25. And as you know, the word gospel means what? Good news. Good news. It's an encouraging word. It's good news. If you will receive it, it's good news. If you will not receive it, it's bad news. But it's good news, encouraging news, if you'll believe it. It is number four, the disseminated word. The word which was preached to you. The word which was spoken to you. The word which was explained to you. What did Peter mean by that? Well, I I take it he meant something like what he himself did. Go back and study the sermons of Peter. Study the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Or his sermon before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Study these and see how Peter preached. And how did he preach? Well, he took a text and explained it. Just, Just go back and check it out. That's exactly what he did. He took a portion of God's word and explained it, sometimes more than one text. He took this text, explained that, took another text, explained that, took another text, explained that, said this is what it says, this is what it means, this is how it applies. Believe it. Repent of your sin. Change your mind. Recognize who God is and what He has done. Recognize who Christ is and what He has done. But he just took a portion of God's Word and he explained it. That's how Peter preached. That must be what he has in mind here when he says, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Some messengers had come into that territory where these people lived. 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Some messengers, some evangelists had come into that area where they lived. They had brought their Bibles with them, Old Testaments. They had preached sermons, taking texts from the Old Testament, explaining what they meant, applying it to their present listeners. And God, by His Spirit, used that to convert them, to give them life, to birth them into the family of God. Amazing. So, in response to what we've learned here, we should recognize the nature of God's Word. But number two, we should recognize the privilege of God's Word. This is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you. Preached to you with divine effect. What grace. What grace. The Word of God had not been preached to everyone in all the world at that time. It was still going to the ends of the earth. But there were many, millions I would take it, who have not yet had the gospel preached to them. But by God's goodness, said Peter to his readers, the gospel has been preached to you. Do you understand the privilege of that? That God should bring his word to me, that God should send his messengers to me. What a high and glorious privilege that is. That God should energize His Word within me. Hundreds, thousands hear the Word of God proclaimed and it doesn't do anything for them. The same Word that saved my sin-darkened soul has been preached to others without effect. I can't explain that. But one thing I know, that's God's Grace, that's God's goodness to me, to you. So we should recognize the privilege of God's word, and we should also recognize the responsibility of God's word. That's implied. If people are regenerated only through the proclaimed word of God, as Peter tells us, if human messengers preach the gospel to them and to us, as is true, then gratitude to God and love for others compels us to preach the gospel to them, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Shouldn't we say with the Apostle Paul, woe is me if I preach not the gospel? Shouldn't we say with the Apostle Paul, I am debtor, both to the wise and to the unwise, the Greek, the the barbarian, Jews and Gentiles, Bond and free, I'm debtor to every man. Why? Because of the gospel that came to me. Because of the grace of God that came to me. I'm debtor to God and I'm debtor to others because of this great grace that came to me. It's a wonderful privilege. It's the greatest of all privileges in all the universe. It's the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me in all eternity. It it is something that God has brought to me that has not been brought to many others Oh, out of gratitude, what should I do? I should take up the Word of God and I should get out there and preach it and proclaim it to others, praying for God to do within their souls what He did with His Word in my soul. Now, as I come to a conclusion, let me make an extended application. Don't don't turn your ears off yet. Because there's one thing in particular I want us to see from this, and that is how do we detect the presence of the new birth in our lives, or in the lives of others, but particularly in our own. If the new birth comes inwardly, 
quietly, often unnoticeably, like conception. Now, when a conception has occurred, the evidences of it make themselves increasingly manifest. It becomes more and more and more evident as time goes on that life has been produced. But at the time when it's first produced, often nobody but God knows it. Right? Nobody but God knows it. And if the spiritual birth is like the physical birth, and there are many analogies, then it should be at least at, at many times that it's the same way. But what does the new birth do? It involves an awakening to, awakening to spiritual realities. It is making men and women alive. It is creating divine life within. That's what it does. It makes us alive to the gospel, the gospel that seems so ho-hum, humdrum, ordinary, nothing particularly exciting about that before, suddenly takes on wonderful excitement for us now. Why is that? Having been born again. Christ takes on new dimensions in our life. We've Perhaps heard about him before, some did, some didn't, but perhaps heard about him before and that was all well and good. But suddenly now there's a new attraction, a new excitement, a new beauty in Jesus Christ that we never saw before. Why is that? Having been born again. The word of God. The word of God now becomes exciting to us. It wasn't before. Some people aren't all that interested in God's word. Some people aren't interested in a church that majors upon preaching God's word. They'd rather have something else. I don't see men's hearts. I don't know what's going on inside, but I have to be concerned that when people are not interested in the word of God, that very well may be because there is no new life. Because the life that God creates is produced by the word and that seed remains within us, how can those who have been produced by the Word of God and who are sustained by the Word of God, how can they fail to have an intense interest in the Word of God? Of course, God's children do. Like newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. If we don't have that kind of interest in the Word of God, then perhaps we haven't been born again. Where did that come from, having been born again? And we have now this new interest in obeying the Lord. We have this new interest in being holy before God. We have this new interest in loving the brethren. It's, it's just these things that develop in our lives. Where did they come from? How do you explain them? Only one way to explain them. Having been born again. The first evidence of the new birth is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. A turning from sin and turning to Christ. What causes people to do that? Having been born again. And the evidence of the new birth continues with interest in Christ's kingdom and in his people and his word. What causes those things? Having been born again. That's the only explanation. Now here's what I want you to see. If these are present, though imperfect, you have been born of God. Did you hear me? If these things are present in your life, not perfect, I know, not fully developed, not without any warring 
desires, fleshly desires from, from old Adam. But if those things are present in your life, there can only be one thing that is true. You have been born of God. Praise God for it. And if these things are absent, even though other elements of Christian religion may be present, even though you may have been baptized and joined a church and are active in the church, but you don't have any real interest in the Word of God, a real interest in Christ, a real interest in obedience and pleasing the Lord. If that's true in your life, no matter what you profess, you must not have been born again. And if you have been born again, why not step step up and say so God's way? Beginning with baptism. Continuing by taking your place in the community of God's people, the church, the local church. Why do you hesitate if these evidences of spiritual life are present? What are you waiting for? A feeling? A Damascus Road experience? A significant time and place that you can nail it down? It happened then? You may never have that. Very few people do, actually. Sometimes people manufacture one because they think it's so important to have one. But folks, it kind of creeps up on you gradually. Now, it happens like this. God implants his divine seed. But you don't know it until you start acting different. You don't know it until a change takes place. You don't know it until you have new desires. New love for Christ. New love for the Word of God. Here we go again. Same things all over again. When those things are there, how do you explain that? Only one way. You didn't do that. God did. You've been born again. So why not testify and say, by the grace of God, no credit to myself. I take take no credit for this whatsoever. I'm not bragging about this because I didn't do it. But I humbly state that I have come to realize that God has given me divine life. By his grace and power, I have been born into the family of God, and I want to say so. I want others to know that. I want to testify to that fact. The evidence of the new birth is new life in Christ. If you've got that, there's only one explanation for it. Having been born again, shall we pray. Father, how we thank you for the miracle of the new birth, which we do not fully understand, but we thank you for this fresh look at it in Peter's epistle. Help us to glory in it. Help us to show our gratitude for it. Help us to proclaim the life-giving word that brought it to us. We pray in Jesus' name.